So it's from Luke 16, verse 1. We'll actually go just to verse 9. On the screen, I think I put up to 14, but we're going to stop at verse 9 because if I go to verse 14, we'll be here all day. So let me read that. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Wow, eh? Is Jesus saying, be a crook? Sounds like it. Let's talk about it. So first, let's figure out one thing. I've been trying to set all the parables in context so that you can um, see that they're not pearls to be plucked out and looked at individually, but they're part of a larger necklace. Now, this parable comes right after the prodigal son. And yet, in the wisdom of the people who put it together and, and gave chapters and verses to it, they decided to make this a brand new chapter. And the reason is, the focus of Jesus shifts a little. Before, the prodigal son, he is speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes. But here, it says, he also said to the disciples. So it's almost like he turns down is teaching the disciples something. And where the prodigal son was trying to show them about relationships. Remember, the Pharisees were upset. How come he welcomes sinners? That's about who is, who is fit to ascend the hill of the Lord. That's what the prodigal son is trying to tell you. This one shifts its focus to the focus of wealth and money. What do we do with money? How do we see it? How do we work with it? What do we use it for? Um, and it's an important question, an incredibly important question. And it's so challenging that you have to be ready to accept a challenging interpretation. Um, very rarely is a part of Scripture really thorny and difficult, and then it comes out to be a very innocuous meaning. It's going to challenge you. And some people may hate me, but let's try to figure out what it means. I don't believe in letting God off the hook. If this is true, then let's tackle it as true. There must be a reason it says what it says. If it's not true, let's go do something else with our Sundays. But I firmly believe this is true. So we don't need to duck hard questions. We simply tackle them and say, what is he showing us? So just be frank. So let's do that. Let's try to figure that out. Think about this, this, this what's happening here. The pro, this, the, the, we should call it the prodigal manager because the same word that says he was wasting his, his master's money is the same word of the younger son and the prodigal son. He is prodigally, pro, his, he is wasting and scattering his, his master's money. And then to get out of, he realizes the jig is up. He's not going to have a job. And to get out of this and to try to secure a future for himself, he then goes and becomes more dishonest. He knows he's going to be figured out. He has to be. And yet he does it anyway. And then you're expecting the master to hammer him, right? To come down. And instead, Jesus says, the master says, well done. 
he praises him for his shrewdness. And then Jesus comes, and you hope Jesus will correct it, but Jesus says, you see, the world is doing something better than you are, and that is difficult, right? Difficult to understand. So I think if we look at this, we're going to see, it, it answers a lot of questions. But one, it's going to say, Who's, whose money is it? Whose wealth is it? It tells us where, who the wealth belongs to. It then tells us how to use it, and then it tells us how you can possibly do what Jesus wants you to do with your wealth. Okay? So whose is it, how do you use it, and how can you use it? So let's begin with whose is it. Let me introduce you to a man named Charles. Charles is this fine, dapper man on the screen we'll put up there. He was an Italian immigrant, and he came to Canada, spent a few years here in the, in the early 20th century, and then he went off to the United States. And he became very wealthy very quickly. In fact, he amassed a fortune of about $20 million, which is about $260 million today. Very well. He was an investor, and he approached people with an incredible opportunity. He said, if you um, will give me money, I will return it to you with a 50% increase in 45 days. Give me 100, I'll give you 150 in 45 days. If you want to give it to me for 90 days, I'll give it a 100% increase. 200 bucks you'll get. And if you want to keep it even longer, I'll give you even more money. And all of this, he said, was based on the fact that he was buying postage stamps at a discounted rate. I'm buying cheap postage, and then I'm selling it at full price, and I'm making a tidy profit. And if you invest, I'll use that money to buy more stamps, and I'll sell more stamps, and you'll get your money. And it worked very well for a few years. $20 million in the, in the early 19, 19, or 20th century, it's a lot of money. But Charles found himself in prison. Very, uh, only a few years later, in fact, I think we have his mugshot you can put up there, and there he is. He's pretty, still pretty happy. Um, he finds himself in prison because it turns out there was no postage stamp. What he was doing was saying, if person A gives me $100, I will give them $150 or $200, but I will use person B and C's money to pay him. And then I'll pay persons B and C, if they need their money out, with the money that D, E, F, and G give me. So there was no investment. He was just running what is called a Ponzi scheme because his name is Charles Ponzi. This is the originator of the Ponzi scheme, made famous by Bernie Madoff about 15 or 2008. He was arrested. If you know Bernie Madoff, if you don't, feel free to Google him if you want to be depressed. And he, he robbed people out of $65 billion using one of these. He made Charles look like a rookie. Okay? And the reason I bring this up is Charles, Bernie, and this dishonest manager have the exact same problem on one respect. They're using money that's not theirs. Okay? They have, have all this money, and much like many Canadians, they say, I can do what I want with my money. It's my money. I earned it. And the Bible rings out unanimously and says, it's just not true. It's not your money. Take, for example, how... 1 Chronicles 29, David is, is on his last legs, and he realizes they've amassed a lot of money to help build the temple. And he then launches into this prayer. Let me read it for you. It's a bit long, but if, there's, if we're going to spend time on something today, maybe reading scripture is a good thing. So let's read it. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and is in the earth is yours. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. But who am I, and what is my people that you should be able thus to offer willingly? Uh, sorry, that, that we should be able to thus offer willingly. For all things come from you, 
and of your own had we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on earth, on the earth, are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. So David comes and says something radical, which the culture wouldn't believe. None of it is yours. David understood. He's a wealthy man. He says, all of it's just yours. It's like a child at Christmas buying his parents something with the money his dad gave him. You know, as C.S. Lewis says, only a foolish father would think he comes out to the better when he gets a tie at Christmas from a child that he gave money to buy the tie with. You're not getting, there's no adding to your wealth here, right? In fact, it may be decreasing if it's an ugly tie, right? And the Bible says it's not yours. And that is radical in a world that says it's my body, it's my choice, it's my life, it's my time, it's my money. We think we are the lawful possessors of these things. And the Bible says it's not true. And the question we have to ask, and this is where what Wendy was saying here is actually it connects to what I'm going to talk about. To help understand this, this idea, I think it's important to understand the difference between two words, responsibility and accountability. They sound, we use them interchangeably, but they're not interchangeable. So, God, let's use a biblical example then a, a practical human example. Biblically speaking, God is responsible for his plan to restore the world. When the fall happens and God says, I have a plan, to do something, to restore it, and to bring things back into order, God is responsible for making that happen, not you. God is, right? However, he does say to you, you're accountable for part of this. I'm going to give you a little bit of something to do. Don't worry, I'll accomplish the end, whether you prove faithful or not, Abraham. Remember when he says to Abraham in Genesis 15, he says the same thing. No matter what happens, I'm going to be faithful. You may not be, but you're accountable for this little task I'm going to give you. And if you take this to a, a, a business example, I'll use an example from my past. So I had a corporate background uh, for a while. I worked for the largest tax-producing, com- tax-preparing company on the planet. Um, so I was a tax collector. Um, and, we ha- and I oversaw all the franchises in Canada. We oversaw all the Canadian franchise operations. Now, when I was doing that, it was very simple. As a company, we had a responsibility to the franchisee. Our job was to create training and support and everything they needed to accomplish their goal. That was my responsibility as a company. The franchisee's job was then to run an ethical and profitable business. The company then says, we're responsible. Carl, I am making you accountable for holding all of these 400 franchisees to the the standards that we make with them. They must be ethical and they have to make some money and pay us some of it. So to accomplish that bit, I was accountable for the numbers. To accomplish it then, the company says, well, you're going to have to travel a lot. You're going to have to be in, Nor- in Whitehorse, in, in Quenelle, B.C., in Newfoundland, where I was. I traveled through the country. I hit every province two or three times a year, every year, for a number of years. Now, to accomplish that, however, they gave me a credit card, a big, fat credit card with a lot of money on it. And uh, they said, here's some wealth. You are called to accomplish this task at this company. But here, we're providing you with wealth. Now, I'm accountable not just for the targets, but for how I spend that money to accomplish the targets that they've asked me to do. And so, when I'm out there and I'm sitting and I'm having dinner, I have to be careful not to order the bottle of wine. Right? It's not my money. They're going to account 
the accountant's going to see it on there. And I knew somebody who we had to deal with because they used their company credit card to buy a limousine and tickets to watch Seinfeld perform in Toronto. That's not the proper use of money for the company. In a similar way, the Bible says, you are not responsible for the salvation of the universe, but God has made you accountable for something, all of you. And then he's provided you with a credit card, some with bigger credit card limits, some with smaller ones. But regardless, your wealth is not yours. It's to accomplish this task. That is the purpose. We're accountable for our money, for our wealth. And I don't want to say just money because money isn't all of our wealth, right? So if this is true, if what David says is true, if what this, this, this is saying is true, this whole idea of this dishonest manager who's accountable to his master, then Malachi 3.8 is the only logical conclusion for humanity. In Malachi 3.8, he says, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. And what scripture says time and again is your misuse of money is not just poor stewardship, it's robbery. Your lack of generosity is robbery. It's a crime. And I know that sounds harsh, but let's not whitewash what the Bible's telling us. This person misuses funds and he's fired from his job. I'm not sure what that equivalent is in, in the world of God, but I don't want to be fired. I have a job and I want to do it well. And the ultimate, this, is where the, this is where we have to part company with sometimes with Christians and sometimes, certainly with the non-believers is here. Abraham Kuyper, everybody knows the name probably, he was a statesman and a theologian, made the incredibly radical but wonderful truth claim when he said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So, if everything is Christ, don't just think about creation. Don't think about trees and grass. Stop it. That's too narrow. Everything. Starbucks, everything made with his wealth, that's mine. It's not being used for his glory. And that's where the church comes in and says, how do we make the world reflect the glory of God? Everything is being used and most things are not being used for God's glory. The church comes in and says boldly, shrewdly, as we're going to talk about, and says, this school, this workplace, this government, is Christ's. And it's being misused terribly. How do we fix it? Shrewdly, not like a bull in a china shop. How do we do this wisely? Which is why we need the Wendy Wilmores. Why we need the baristas, the teachers, the administrators, the lawyers, the construction workers to think carefully about what it means to be called as an agent of the gospel in this broken world. So, if the money is not ours, let me move on because otherwise I'll be here all day. If the money is not ours, then now the question is, well, how do we use it? What does he mean by shrewd? Because it sounds like he's saying, be just as crooked as the world. And the, the, the answer really is found here in this passage where he says, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Sounds like he's saying we should be just as shrewd, or more so, we'll get there. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So what is he saying? Rather than me say it, I realize there's a scholar, a commentator who said it. I'm just going to use his words because he's much more succinct than I am. Here's what James R. Edwards has to say. He's a New Testament scholar. What is praiseworthy about the steward's shrewdness? Unlike the sons of light who may retreat into pious passivity in the face of opposition, the shrewd manager forms a plan and acts on it. When all hope seems lost, he does what he can. Even if the little he can do may not seem to amount to much. 
His positive action spares him from resignation and cynicism. In contrast to the parable of the rich man who amassed wealth without any thought of the future, the master praises the steward, scoundrel though he is, for his ingenuity in figuring out a way of providing for his future by using his soon-to-be-lost financial power. He is indeed a son of the world of this world, but he is more prudent in planning for the only future he is concerned about than the typical religious person is in planning for his eternal future with God. Now, that's hard to hear. And some people, I can almost hear the emails coming, some people will struggle with the fact of this. You have much to learn from the sinful world. Not everything to learn, but much to learn. Let me give you a couple of practical examples. When, first of all, I've worked in the corporate world, and there's much to be corrected. There's nothing, we don't want to model what they do in every way. But here's what I do know. They were so jealous for profit and power and success that they were really good at their jobs. So good that they would be watching market trends. I knew one guy, I won't say his name, he still works at the company, he's out in Calgary. This guy would literally every morning check and see what the cost of paint was because he was trying to save pennies. How do I make this business more efficient? How do I make it more resistant to, to uh, economic recessions? How do I get a cheaper table for people to sit in? to prepare their taxes? How do I make things more efficient online? In fact, did you know, as a company, we decided to give away free tax returns online to rival a company that was making you pay $20. We'd rather lose money than have them get some. That was the way we worked. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying, do you see, this poor, this, this, this idol that they were chasing, money, success, profit only, that poor God of theirs was enough to make them excellent at what they did. And here you and I have this incredible God, and you and I, as he's saying, fall behind this lack of saying sometimes naively, God will provide, we don't have to plan, we don't have to change with the culture, why would we? And we sometimes think we're being, on, we're being good Christians. No, you're being lazy. It doesn't mean sacrificing the gospel. We preach the gospel, but we always preach an unchanging gospel to an ever-changing culture. We must be shrewd. And he's calling us. This is literally what he's saying to us. We have to watch these things. Let me use two very practical examples of the church before I move on. Not us specifically. One's historic, one is more contemporary. In around 1906, something happens in Azusa, California. It's the rise of the Pentecostal movement. Okay? If anybody knows the Pentecostal movement, it starts in California. Um, it had precursors, but that's when it really begins to bubble up. And the Pentecostal movement begins as uh, an end-time movement. They think Christ is coming right away, like today. So they become incredibly zealous for mission war, missional work. They send out missionaries by the hundreds and thousands. They're flying out of America first, and you see pockets elsewhere, and even in Toronto. Um, even here, the first Pentecostal church is not far from us, first Canadian Pentecostal church. And they go out. Now, the zeal was good. The problem was how naive they were because they were sending out missionaries, because remember Pentecostalism, and I'm not in any way disparaging it, but I am saying they are big fans of the gift of tongues. And they believed that when you become a Christian, you get, get this gift of tongues. And at the time, they were saying, you get one of two types. The babbling kind, where nobody understands you, but it's, God understands. It's a language of heaven. Or you get xenolalia, not glossolalia, big words. Xenolalia is you also might just get a, a, an earthly language you've never heard before. You don't know, but now all of a sudden you can speak Swahili, Spanish. It just comes out of you. 
So they were sending missionaries abroad with no training, no cultural training, no language training, because they simply said, when we get there, God will give us the language. Now, hundreds died or came back disillusioned because they thought they were being faithful, but they weren't being shrewd. You see, there's a difference between claiming faith and being ignorant and naive. There's both. Christ here is saying, you've got to grow up. We have to start using every bit of ingenuity we have to reach people, to do this. And we're going to talk more about what that looks like. Give me one more example, a practical one. I was called to a church in north of Toronto a few years ago. They said, if you're going to be in the area traveling for other work, could you stop in because we're dying? The church was dying. It was a mainline denomination. It was plummeting. I said, um, we've heard that you have some ideas. Could you come and just help us figure out what to do? So I go, and we sit there for a little lunch in their basement, and I listen, and, and I listen. And the two clear problems arose. One, they stopped believing their Bible. They became liberal. The second was they stopped caring about their building. They said, who cares? It's just a building. That's, it's irrelevant, right? Just a building. Nobody should care. Nobody should be so superficial as to care about the appearance of a building. So I, they said, what, do you, what would you do, Carl? I said, first thing you must do is preach the gospel. If, if, if you are, um, you know, if this is not... If you're not preaching Christ, you're just a community group. I don't know what you are, but you're not a church. So preach the gospel. It's true, believe it. That's the first, that's simplest. You know, if you do that, that's, that's really all you really need to do. But failing that, look at this building. It's falling apart. When people get on a plane, did you know if you get on a plane and it looks dirty, something like 60% of flyers, I think this is the number, automatically assume the pilot is incompetent. If there's dirt, you know, if you've ever gone into that little bag, that little slot in the front, and there's like a, somebody else's wrapper in there, people automatically equate the cleanliness of a plane with the competency of a pilot. They do the same thing with a building. When somebody says, it's just a building, it doesn't matter. Grow up. It's not true. Buildings are biblically irrelevant, but culturally necessary. Biblically agreed, meet anywhere you want. This culture thinks differently about those things. When they come in and the child nursery room is dirty, they don't want their children to be there, right? It's pretty simple. So we have to think that way. And then this church ended up saying, sorry, Carl, we don't want to preach the way you say, and we're not interested in changing the, the building. We have enough money in the bank, we'll ride it out. And, and that church just ejected. It's a law office now. It's not a church anymore. Beautiful old building. And this is the way it happens, because they are not shrewd. Now, let me look at what the word shrewd means, because I think you may be thinking, but what does it mean? It is used continually in the New Testament. And look at just some examples. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise, phronimos is the word for shrewd that is used in our passage, same word, a wise man who builds his house on a rock. Matthew 25, 2, we preached it a few weeks ago, the, the bridesmaids. Five of them were foolish, but five of them were Pronimos, shrewd. Those two, and before we get to that third one, tell us something. Shrewd means, first of all, it's not unbiblical. A Christian is shrewd. A Christian looks at the foundation, decides what house will stand, what won't. It doesn't mean saying, I'm just going to build here and trust God, and my faith is enough to save it. No, God says, no, there's laws of physics. Your house will fall apart. I still love you, but you're going to have a crappy house. There's shrewdness that he's expecting of us. But it's not shrewdness like the world, and we need Matthew 10, 16, because he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep 
in the midst of the wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now there's the key. We are to be as shrewd and savvy as any human alive in running the church, in running our finances, in running our lives. But we must do it without being as crooked as this this dishonest manager. The shrewdness, we can't say you can only have one. Christ is saying, no, you can do both. Shrewd as a snake and innocent as a dove. So at the church, with our money individually, we look and we say, how do we be really excellent at what we do? Excellent, without compromising the gospel and ethics, of course. We're not going to break the law, right? How do we do that? You don't have to do one or the other. And this is difficult, because people will then say, Carl, you shouldn't be preaching. You shouldn't be mentioning people who aren't Christians in your sermons. Nonsense. That view assumes that not every square inch of the world is Christ's. It's all Christ. Shakespeare's words don't honor Christ, but they are Christ's words that come out of his mouth that God gave that man, and he will even turn the broken words of a sinner to somehow bring glory to him. This is what God does. He'll take everything and bend it towards his will. There's this wonderful scene in Isaiah where he says he rides Assyria like a, like a horse master. He says, I put a bit in the mouth of Assyria, and I will steer its rage towards Israel. The idea is God says, I will let them be as rotten as they want to be, but not without it serving my purposes. I am responsible, he says, for the universe. I will make my plan come. So when we look at the world, you don't have to take everything the world's doing. I hopefully will never say, listen to Shakespeare as your theological master. But even in those, you hear the whispers of God in them at times. You have to be shrewd. But it's there. We can learn from parts of the world. Now, let me move on. So how do we do this? How can we possibly do Well, let me, actually, one more thing. It says that we should be investing our, our unrighteous money in these things that are eternal. And that's when you look at the things and you say, how do we take our resources, our wealth, our time, and where do we put the money? We put them in the things that will last beyond us. So you put them into people like Wendy Wilmore. You put them into ministries that are preaching the gospel into ministries that are healing and restoring the world, into churches that are doing it. You put your time into these things because you realize that the money must be bent towards the call that God has put on your life and as, a, and as a church's life. So you look for those shrewd opportunities to do that. But the question we have to answer lastly is how can we possibly do this? Because money is such a powerful idol that Tim, in, Paul, uh, in Timothy, Paul refers to it as the love of money as the root of all kinds of evil. In fact, the word all kinds isn't technically there. This is the root of evil. It's the root of evil. Sometimes you put all kinds. I'm not sure why the translators do that. But it's the root of evil. Why? Why is it that way? And then Jesus says it in the next few verses after the parable. He clarifies a bit and he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And what's so bad about money? Well, nothing. But the love of it is. And let's look at the reason why it might be the case. I'm going to challenge a little thinking here. Money is useless to you except as in its place as a cultural symbol. So what is money? It's paper. It's, uh, it's, it's metal. Right now it's e-currency, whatever. It's something. But it only has value here where we've put value in it. Right? So as a result, money can only purchase that which can be purchased with money. It has no ability to purchase anything eternal. Zero. Because money is a cultural symbol. We've created it, right? You go to Mars and you, ask, you offer a Martian, not that there's Martians on Mars, but if you say, hey, don't kill me, here's 20 bucks. 
he's going to zap you. Somebody's going to take this out of context and say that I believe in Martians. Here we go. <laughs> but, but you see, it only has a value in that context. So, when Christ comes and says, don't value money, he is saying, if you value money, if you love money, it means you love everything but him because he's eternal. And that's a problem. So, when money gets put in its right place as derivative, as something given to you to accomplish something for God, all of a sudden then you begin to see people using it in such a way that is radically countercultural. They become almost frivolous, it looks like. And look at an example in Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about the church in Macedonia. Let me read it again, this, this passage. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their, name, their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Here's a key coming up. I say this not, to, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love, is all, your love also is genuine. Crux here. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The Macedonian church is broke. They don't have money. And yet they are able to give to the relief of other people. How? It's only because they had the idol of money broken in their lives. Money doesn't save me. See, think about this. If God's responsibility is to fix the world, and he says his responsibility is to care for your needs, you don't need to care for your needs nearly as much as you do. Right? His responsibility, his responsibility he doesn't ever says, go and fix your own life. He never says that. And the church in Macedonia seems to trust that fact and say, he's responsible. We can be generous and yet not lose. Radically countercultural. But they do it. And the only reason they're able to do it in that last line is, for you know the grace of our Lord. And this is the vital part. Because they didn't just know about the grace, but they experienced grace. Because they saw and realized that the king of heaven who had everything laid it down. He gave up his wealth to make you rich. And when you acknowledge, when you see that, it changes your relationship with money. You don't need to worry about your food. You don't need to worry. You can be radically strategic in how you spend your money, but also seemingly frivolous to the world. You can be shrewd because you realize you're here for a job. And Christ and his plan to save you was incredibly shrewd. I don't know how all of you came to faith. I know how I did. And it I can't say it was anything less than a miracle, and the amount of strands he must have had to tie together in my life so that I wasn't dead before I met him, first of all, that I wasn't led astray completely and ruined. I don't even know how he did it. I don't know. No idea. The fact that he was so shrewd in deciding how to draw me to him, and then so liberal in giving his money, giving his wealth, giving himself on the cross. On the cross, he was deemed poor so that you could be made rich. Changes everything. So we can be as shrewd and shrewder than this manager without being as crooked as him. And that's actually what Christ is calling us to do. Be shrewd without being crooked. Let's pray.